Hello and welcome to Colloquium, where we strive to start holy conversations, to start transformative conversations, both in our own lives and hopefully in the lives of our listeners as well. Today, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about books. Good books, right, Nick? Yep, I think so. I'm not sure how much I've read, but we'll, uh, we'll try our best. Colloquium. 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 Ah, all right, all right. Here's what I want to do to start this off. So we're going to talk about the armchair philosophers, as they're sometimes known. So that's G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and J.R.R. Tolkien. These are three writers in 20th century England who all had a relationship, a friendship together, and they yeah, really some of the most prominent writers of the 20th century, and they all happen to be very devout Christians. Two of the three were Catholic, uh, Chesterton and Tolkien were. So how I want to start this off is we love talking about things we know about, but also things we don't know about. So let's see how much do we actually know about these three writers. So let's start with, let's say, Chesterton. How many Chesterton books do you think you've read, Nick? I've read one. I know I've read one. And I actually, you know, I didn't know that... Ch- I thought Chesterton was before the time of Lewis and Tolkien, so that's funny you say that. Do they all have... No, yeah, they're, they're, they're all contemporaries. Well, for yeah. crying out loud, I did not know that. In fact, um, Tolkien, actually, his book, The Everlasting Man, had a big impact on Lewis's conversion, as mm-hmm. well as conversations that the three of them had at times. Wow. Lo and behold. Yes, yeah, so I've read I've read one book by Chesterton that's called Man Alive. Maybe we can talk about it a little bit later, maybe not. But um all in all, I, I've only heard a lot about him, I would say, mm-hmm. besides that book. I haven't really studied him much or read a lot of his stuff besides that. So interested to hear more into what your perspective is on him. Yeah, I mean I've read, gosh, how many? Probably four or five works from Chesterton. Um, a couple fiction, a couple nonfiction. And yeah, he's really a interesting author. He he's often called like the Prince of Paradox. So he just says things that like make tremendous sense, but also don't. On the other hand, right. um, it's often described as just like he says truths very simply in a very poetic and like profound way. And I think his book Orthodoxy is a good example of this. Um, the the man who was Thursday is actually that's actually a fictional book. Um, so we'll kind of talk about two categories. There's like fictional books that have kind of seeds and elements of the gospel in them, but also then explicitly non-fiction. Maybe it's uh, poetry. Maybe it's some sort of work that's addressing a certain topic. Um, and Chesterton has both of those. So yeah, let's. Let's go ahead and talk about, okay, Lewis. How many Lewis books have you said, would you say you've read? Uh, I've read all of Narnia, uh, so that's seven books. Seven. And okay. then I've read uh, The Great Divorce, uh, so that's eight. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I feel like there's one other that I've read. Um, I can't think of it at the moment. So the yeah, loves, The Four right? Loves, yeah. that's right. I've read The Four Loves by yeah. C.S. Lewis. Um, so, yeah, I've read quite a bit of him. Um, I really enjoy his stuff, too, so I'm interested to talk about him as well. Yeah, yeah. no, Lewis is phenomenal. Um, maybe the most prominent of the three. Right. Um, I think especially in, in being not a Catholic, um, he's a big following in Protestant circles as well as Catholic circles. Yeah. Um, so I do not have the advantage of having read the entire Narnia series. Both with Lewis and Tolkien, I kind of started reading them too young, especially Tolkien. Like, I was too young. I got through The Hobbit, part of The Fellowship of the Ring. But, yeah, with Lewis, I kind of I read about half the series, I think, maybe a little less, and never finished it, but... Love The Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe. Saw the movie. I show it in class. Um, yeah, really phenomenal. But so, all things considered, I've read most of his nonfiction, actually. Right. So, I mean, I've probably read eight to ten things from C.S. Lewis, with the majority of those being nonfiction, actually. Um, we have here The Great Divorce, which I think we'll talk about a little bit. Um, but yeah, Narnia, you'll probably have to take the lead if we go there. Yeah, um, maybe so. I think what you're saying is I'm smarter than you because I've read more of the Narnia series. Is that what I you're trying to say? I never say such a thing. Okay. Well, anyway, All that's right. what I thought. Tolkien. <laughs> okay. What about Tolkien? T- Tolkien. So, um, Tolkien is uh, really on my mind and heart right now. I'm about um, uh, 70, 75% of the way through the Two Towers. So, I'm working my way through right now uh, Tolkien, and that's the first I've really read of him ever. So, I'm I'm pretty immersed in that that story right now. I'm pretty, pretty pumped about it. I'm actually reading my uh, dad's 1970s versions of uh, The Lord of the Rings, his old, you know, four pack that he got of The Hobbit and 
uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So I'm pretty pumped to read those old pages and kind of flip through and yeah, think about my dad reading it when he was my age or maybe a little younger. So anyway, it's kind of cool. Very nice. Yeah. Have you seen the movies? I have. I've seen most of most all of the movies. I think I've never sat down and watched through and through the two towers, but mm-hmm. um, I feel like a lot of people can say the same thing too, that like, yeah, they've kind of seen most of the clips of the movies here and there, right. but I think, um, yeah, sitting down and watching them is a, is a huge task. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nine or 10 hours of film. So anyway. Right. And until, so each of the movies is about three hours long. Right. If and you're watching the, the short versions, right. I think there's the extended too that are longer plus than hours that. Yeah. in the extended Whew. version. Yeah. So, I yeah I was in that category for a while. Recently, I actually watched the entire series start right. to finish, and yeah, it was, man, I, I can't wait to talk about it because it's just been a profound experience. But I'd say also I probably am at one and a half in terms of books. I think Hobbit and the Fellowship of the Ring. I was in third grade, second or third grade when I started reading them, and gotcha. it was good. But I just it was it was a it was not necessarily. It was definitely not third grade reading level. Um, so I think I was in a little bit over my head and kind of got burnt out. But so glad that I went back and watched the movies. And the movies, I think, unlike a lot of other series, are considered fairly good adaptions of the books. Would you say so? Yeah. I, I mean, so I'm reading the books kind of after. It's been a while since I've seen the movies. Sure. So I'm really excited to kind of go back almost immediately after yeah. I read the books and check out the movies and kind of see right. um, what the perspective is. or Because I'm pretty sure now after reading the books that they do kind of um, change the plot a little bit or remove a character or two and... Um, kind of twisted in a way for theatrical purposes, which may or may not be the wrong thing sure. to do. But uh, I realize reading the books that they do do that. So anyway, I'm interested to see what kind of experience I'll have re- uh, watching the movies versus uh, reading the books uh, once right. I get done with the series. Yeah. yeah. So we're bringing these three authors up in particular for a couple reasons. Um, one is, I think, because of yeah the relationship they had, the relationship their writings had to each other, and yeah, just the impact they had on 20th century thought. But also, I think, in the sense of talking about the fictional narrative. So especially with Lewis and Chesterton, they've written two, or sorry, Lewis and Tolkien, have written two just absolute masterpieces in terms of fictional series. Series? Series? Series. <laughs> series. I don't know if he's gotten over that third grade reading level yet, but... Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was a Gotti? Oh. No, I don't say Gotti. Nick says Gotti. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else in the world says Gotti, okay. but when I say it, like I said it once in like the first episode, when I went back and heard it, I'm like, that just didn't sound right. But when Nick says it, it sounds it sounds quite natural. I don't know. Um, you said that pretty seriously there too, so you're starting to kind of take on my language, and um, I think Dylan's becoming one of my um, oh no. joke disciples, as they say. Oof. You'll come around. <laughs> I I. Oh gosh, I don't know how to feel about this. <laughs> Nick does this other thing he's been doing lately in, in texts and in group chats where he puts what he says in parentheses. And it's just the weirdest thing because it's like it, it's not anything that would need to be put in parentheses, but it's in parentheses. And then we'll like I'll respond in parentheses. And I just I don't know. Is that a larger trend or is that just a Nick thing? No, it's just kind of like a. I kind of want to slip in a comment or a, a note or something that maybe is not like a prominent thought that I want everyone to look at, but it's just kind of like an aside. So that's why I put a parenthesis around the, the words. But now it's kind of turned into a thing where someone made fun of me. I think it was Dylan probably. And uh, yeah. <laughs> now all of a sudden everything I do is in parentheses, which is just not true. So I think, I think that's true. I think just about everything you say and do, I think of pretty parenthetically. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, let's get back to what we were talking about. What was that again? The fictional narrative. So the fictional narrative, especially with regard to these three thinkers, Nick, I think this is something you're really passionate about, especially in in finding the gospel in fiction, in works of fiction. And I think especially with with these two authors in particular. Um, So maybe you could say a few words on on what that means for you. Sure, yeah. Um, I haven't read a ton of Chesterton, like I said before, but specifically with C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien. I've just really been uh, reflecting on and been really moved by kind of their style of portraying the gospel um, in their their works, especially with Narnia and uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, And I 
I think, you know, I've been reflecting a lot about what the power, what the, you know, what the influence of that is on the wider culture. You know, I think with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, you know, Aslan, the lion being a, you know, just a direct Christ figure and the kind of the whole story surrounding that series being very much the story of the Christian life and, you know, this and that. Right. And our journey to heaven. It's a, it's a direct, obvious kind of, you know, right. um, image of that of that, um, gospel message, you know? So w- with that, you know, C.S. Lewis kind of differs from Tolkien, who's kind right. of more, uh, not as subtle, I would say, um, so his influences are, yeah, not directly, you know, gospel images per se, but you know, the, the images of, of scripture and kind of the themes just bleed through his, his kind of yeah. story. So anyway, just been reflecting a lot about what the power of those fictional narratives are for the wider culture. Um, right. Yeah, so let's go there. I actually, so a little bit of context. This is something I'm passionate about too. In fact, in my freshman theology class, I teach, uh, really throughout the year, I teach on like, yeah, the power of of fiction to portray the gospel message. And I kind of introduced that by showing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. And that's a very explicit, like, if you're familiar with the gospel, you can see that Aslan is clearly supposed to represent Jesus. Right. And yeah, there's, you know, death, resurrection, he is the savior, you know, they use language that's very rooted in, in Christianity and the gospel. And I show that it's very easy for ninth graders in college to pick up on that and to see, oh yeah, this is clearly showing the gospel. And then I have them write a paper where they can do anything else, any other work of fiction that isn't explicitly preaching the gospel, but has elements of the gospel. And many of them have actually chosen uh, elements from Tolkien, so one of his his books, and that I think that's a really good exercise for them because it's like they can see it more obviously in C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, and then they can dig a little bit deeper, but still not having to dig too deep because it's there pretty clearly in Tolkien. Right. And so I think there's a beauty in both of that. There's a beauty in the obvious, and there's a beauty in the subtlety yeah. as well. I'm with you. I, let's maybe talk about both of those really quick. I think yeah. um, just the the obvious portrayal of scripture um, in a fictional, non-direct way, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I think w- for one one obvious thing is that it's helpful to see or to to hear to visualize the gospel story in just a different way from one that you've heard before. Maybe you're in you know in church and mass growing up every other Sunday and you know, every Sunday should be every Sunday mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, the stories just become kind of numb to you. You kind of half listen right. and you've heard it before. Mm-hmm. And so you, you kind of, I don't know, it, it kind of dumbs down the, the story for you because, you know, you think you've heard it before and so you don't listen in. Right. Uh, but with, you know, hearing it anew in this kind of dramatic fictional way, um, it gives you the ability, I think, to, um, I don't know, spark that interest in your heart again. Uh, spark yeah. that desire to learn more and to enter into that message a little, a little bit, a little bit more. Yeah. So anyway, so what are some of the ways we see that in, let's say, the Lord of the Rings, for instance? <laughs> um, so I actually have a. I'm reading the Two Towers right now, like I said before, and I have a, a passage here that I think I'd like to read from that. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with the, you know, kind of the story of Lord of the Rings, um, there's this. I'll briefly touch on it. There's this this wizard figure Gandalf, who you know very much portrays Christ in a, a lot of ways. He's kind of the, the leader of their band, who's, you know, on this journey. Um, Gandalf, uh, you know, quote unquote, dies. Supposedly, you know, falls into this pit and he passes away. Whatever. Um, there's a scene, he actually comes back and there's a scene where he returns. So there's a clear resurrection theme, obviously. Um, so, um, let me just set this up really quick. There, you know, there's three, his three companions, there's Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli. So they're, mm-hmm. you know, three companions of Gandalf that are kind of wandering through the woods and they stroll up this hill, right? They're, they're walking up this kind of mountain in the middle of the woods, um, to kind of get a better view. So they roll up there and they're looking out and they see this old man kind of walking towards them in gray. He's got like a gray cloak over him and they're, who is that guy? You know, they're kind of intimidated at first. Don't know who it is. Think it might be someone evil. This old man climbs up the hill, um, to them. They're really apprehensive. Um, and so think about this for a second. We've got three companions. Uh, we've got this old man, um, who now reveals himself to be Gandalf. Um, and he jumps up onto this rock above them on this hill. 
and he reveals his his self. He takes off his cloak, and there's these three figures standing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want kind of read this for you. This this passage from. Uh, Tolkien in the two towers um, after kind of this happens and I want you to kind of reflect on what this what this could possibly interpret Here it is. Yeah, they all gazed at him His hair was white as snow in the sunshine and gleaming white was his robe The eyes under his deep brows were bright piercing as the rays of the Sun Power was in his hand between wonder joy and fear. They stood and found no words to say just a brief passage there. Yeah. So, um, a, a clear transfiguration. You know, so the the Christ figure shining on the top of a hill. The three, you know, his three companions, disciples, you know, right. beholding. So there's just a clear example of you know right. Tolkien portraying the gospel. Um, anyway. Yeah, and what what I was thinking as you were reading that and reflecting upon that scene and really building that image in my mind is that. Yeah, like why? Why do they need to? Why does he need to retell the resurrection story? Why? Why does he do that? And I think a lot of that has to do with, like you're saying, we can read the Gospels and these stories happened two thousand years ago and feel kind of removed. And I think there is a way. I know there is a way to read the Gospels in a a real way. Lectio Divina is a very good way of, um, yeah, reading the Gospels in a way in that it's relevant and impacting your life in the moment. But not everybody's there. Not everybody's praying. Not everybody's conscious of that or knows how to read scripture with that mindset. And so the gospels can feel distant. And so when you, when you see that, when you encounter that in a fictional narrative, in a new setting, in a setting that's more modern, more relevant, or even in a fictional world that you've built in your mind through reading these books, right? you can encounter it maybe in a, in a more tangible, in a, in a beautiful way. I think the beauty of it strikes you in a more tangible way sure than a more remote a story that appears more remote yeah absolutely uh, so it it's kind of hard but so i was explaining to this this story to you know this passage to you know some friends of ours the other day mm-hmm. and granted they probably hadn't read lord of the rings in a while or i was explaining this passage to my dad mm-hmm. who you know has read the book you know books a couple of times and mm-hmm. you know people who know the christian story who right. did not recognize that that right. was right. a clear... Tra- I mean, he's bonking you on the head with it, Tolkien. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's grabbing the book and smacking you on the head with it. Like, listen, this is a clear transfiguration right. image. You know, mm-hmm. three people beholding a shining figure on the top of a hill. I mean, you can't get any right. more clear than that. And there's people that, you know, people that are, are you know, Christians and are, you know, following the Lord faithfully mm-hmm. and are trying to and still don't recognize. Right. And so, you know, I think there's a sense in which um, we kind of sympathize or are moved by a story or an image like this in a way that, you know, even if we don't recognize it directly, it still impacts us. Um, we kind of, which kind of speaks to, you know, how we're made for the gospel. Right. You know, even if we don't recognize, even if we're not looking for this transfiguration kind of image, when we hear it or when we see it or when we visualize it, it moves us. And that's because we're made for the gospel. It's just a, right. a direct kind of, um, I don't know, it's proof that what we're made for, you know, what they say we're made right. for is what we're made for, you know? Right. Um, anyway. Yeah, that's such a good point because there's, there's a way in which divine revelation, you know, in scriptures is is a particular thing that if you read the Bible, you're familiar with that story. But there's a sense in which, too, there's a lot that's ingrained on our hearts in natural revelation, in the way we're created, that is is the truth of the gospel. So I think of, you know, Thomas Aquinas, and he writes about this, this idea that, yeah, there are actually a lot of things we can know by natural revelation. We can know the existence of God through the powers of our human reason. We can know certain things. Aquinas is a good example of someone who, who believed and really demonstrated that the universe to a certain level is intelligible. It means we can understand it. It's, it's not, I think sometimes it's easy to get confused by it, but we do have, our reason has the ability to help us understand certain fundamental truths. Right. And some of those are also experiential. You know, there may be not just the fact that objectively speaking, there is a God, but that, yeah, I'm made for something. I'm made <laughs> for a story. I'm made for death and resurrection, right? you know, like is in the case of both Lewis and in Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think 
when we with these stories too I don't quite know how to explain it, but the best image I think is we kind of let our, our swords and shields down a little bit. We kind of let our guards down when we read stories mm-hmm. like this. Um, you mentioned that, you know, the gospel, we're a little bit far removed from it. And I think that's true, but I think there's a sense in which um, with these stories, we're kind of removed from it in a good way. We're kind of entering ourselves into the story right. in kind of a, like a non- I don't know, risky way. Non-committal. Yeah. Non-committal. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah, we're able to kind of be a part of the story in a way that's kind of, you know, inoffensive, or I think non-committal is the best way to say it, you right. know, and so yeah. we're just observing, and uh, our hearts are just kind of, you know, open when we read right. a book like this um, to let things enter in as they see fit. Um, yeah. So I think which has, which brings a lot of power to these stories. Right, because it's in a sense it's easier for a non-believer to enter into the character of Peter in The Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe. But maybe not as much Peter in the gospel. Right. Right. That's, you know, that's a level of praying with scripture, you know, Ignatian meditation, whatever tradition you're using to pray with that, that's yeah, very Christian and very, you know, some people won't even open the gospel, but they'll open, you know, a work of fiction that has elements of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, when we, when we read these stories that aren't, you know, the Bible that are clearly gospel influenced, you know, it prepares our hearts, you know, especially if we're looking for it. Okay, I read Tolkien or I read Lewis, and I'm moved by it, right? I'm very moved by the story. I'm moved by Aslan or Gandalf or whoever, um, and kind of the, you know, the way in which they portray Jesus. So then I'm more oriented to say, okay, you know, I think I can go, let's say I can do this with the scriptures now, except this is a story that I'm actually a part of. I can open up the scripture and kind of integrate myself the way I do mm-hmm. Tolkien or Lewis, but it's alive and I'm a part of this story. You know, so I think having a, you know, um, a good sense of kind of when Lewis or Tolkien or whoever you're reading kind of, you know, moves you to, to visualize the gospel in a better way, that should translate us towards the Bible, um, yeah. towards Lectio Divina, like you said, um, yeah. towards more pr- deeper prayer. So anyway. I think the, the biggest question for me at this point, though, Nick, is is how do you build that bridge? Because you even said yourself that there's this, yeah, it's very common that people, you know, will hear the resurrection of Gandalf there and not think of the resurrection of Christ. And I've experienced this in the classroom where I use Narnia because I use the line, the witch, and the wardrobe because it's so explicit. Right. Like, and granted, these are kids who have heard the story of the gospel to a certain extent in their lives, and so they have to match it to that. And maybe for somebody who hasn't heard the gospel, it isn't that simple. Um, it isn't that clear. Hmm. But even for people who have heard the gospel, when you're not talking about the Chronicles of Narnia and you're talking about it, even Tolkien, which s- still can seem like when I was watching through the movies recently, you know, as, as an adult, it was clear to me. But when I was a kid, it wasn't as clear. When I wasn't as, yeah, as far along in my faith journey as, and as steeped in the gospel in my day-to-day thinking, it wasn't as obvious. And I think for a lot of people, you can read a novel like that and read other, whether it's Dostoevsky or Walker Percy, Flannery O'Connor, read it. You know, a lot of these are on high school texts at public schools, and they have deep roots in the gospel. These are Christian writers writing about Christian things. But I think you can kind of miss the theme. And, you know, myself, going to private schools growing up, like, that was always on the table. And I, I guess I'm curious, I don't know what, if you had an experience like in public schools of reading, maybe it was Flannery O'Connor or somebody with this, and yeah, did you see the Christian themes? Were those talked about at all? What did that look like? Yeah, so I actually have a vivid, I wouldn't say vivid, but I have a, a pretty clear memory as a sophomore in high school. And I, I went to a big public school um, in my English class of reading uh, Flannery O'Connor's famous short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. It's probably her most famous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we read that it. in my public school English class in mm-hmm. 10th grade. And at the time, I had no idea that she was a like one of the greatest Catholic authors of the 20th century. And, you know, mm-hmm. I had no idea that, you know, the themes yeah. bleeding within the, the short story. And, yeah. you know, I, I remember the story as being like a really strange and yeah. hard to read, so, but profound kind of, yeah, looking back. A Good Man, The Hard to Find, is that the one with the Bible salesman? Becomes, no, so, so no. Um, I don't even really know. You're going to put me on the spot. Okay. I don't even really remember the whole story in detail. But that's the one I believe where um, essentially this, you know, 
mass murderer is running around Georgia and um, right. this grandmother mm-hmm. and her, you know, her son or grandson, you go or grandchildren go on this trip. They're going on vacation and they, uh, you know, their car wrecks and they come across right. this mass yes. murderer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of a story of finding grace in your last moment and, um, right. you know, this and that. So it's a, it's a really powerful and shocking story in classic mm-hmm. Flannery O'Connor style, but Right. Um, it's a, it's a dark story right, for sure, especially in the end. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I've forgotten what the original question is now. <laughs> yeah. So how does that conversation happen amongst people who maybe aren't trained to think about it? In yeah, that's exactly the, exa- the gospel. That, that's a great point. Um, so I think one thing for recognizing stories like that is having the gospel on your mind and heart at all times. Um, I mean, that's just, that's the most clear way to be able to recognize Christ in you know, various stories or throughout your day, really. But, you know, particularly when you're reading stories like this um, is, are, do you have a prayer life? You know, is your, is your, um, is your prayer life consistent? Are you, you know, seeking to know the Lord and grow closer to him um, on a, you know, day-to-day basis? Um, if you're not, how are you going to recognize him if you don't know him? Right. Um, you know, and if he's not on your mind and heart, you know, as you're reading or as you're going about your day, how would you be ready to recognize him? Um, right. And sometimes he does slap you on the face, like Aslan mm-hmm. in Chronicles of Narnia. Sometimes he does that and wakes you up. But sometimes if you're not, if you're not ready, if you, if you don't have that on your mind and heart, you miss it. You know, right. so um, anyway, having yeah. the gospel on your mind and heart. Yeah, yeah and I think, I think sometimes it takes a good teacher, too, or right. a good yeah, somebody to walk you through that and point that out to you. Right. I think, Nick, you know, to get a little philosophical here, I just, I think there's, Something about the concept of a story and so many great, like if you were to look at, even for public schools, probably the curriculum for English class, a good chunk of those are by Christian authors or have like very explicitly Christian themes and things you could talk about and relate to the gospel. But yeah, I think sometimes they don't get, and I think even thinking about myself and the way I was educated growing up, even going to Catholic school, that wasn't super tangible for me all the time. Hmm. And now when I read things, maybe it's being at a higher le- reading level. Maybe it's having learned to engage with these texts in a, yeah, in a more effective way. But now it's like clear to me. And I, I, I could read something that's not even explicit, that's not trying to tell the gospel story sure. and see these ways in which the gospel has impacted the worldview mm-hmm. in this novel. And I think it's, there's this sense in which in the, in the modern world, you know, there was a time where the story, the greatest story ever told was the story of the gospel. And it still is. But there was a time where I think that was more, you know, in the time of Christendom, when Christianity was the dominant worldview in the West. And maybe it still is to an extent, could debate that, but it's definitely waned over the last century or two, or maybe longer. And there was a time in which, in which that shaped the way people read. And I don't think we're in that time as much right yeah i think what you mean too is when you say when you say you know our christianity our christian kind of influence culture that we may or may not have um doesn't shape the way that we read anymore i think what you mean is it it doesn't shape the way that we live anymore you know i I think that's kind of Hmm. um a very similar kind of conclusion that you know why why wouldn't that be the case you know if we if we don't live in a christian influence way why would we read that way Um, right you know we I think it's worth a serious look. And I think right now in our conversation, we're more talking to, you know, Christians that are trying to live out their faith well. I think that's kind of who we're directing it towards Mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, That's kind of a question, right, is, you know, that I think maybe we've brought up before in previous conversations is, you know, if I'm not, you know, am I living the way a a Christian should live, you know, should really live according to the gospel, you know, and um, reading is part of that. You know, am I, am I reading the way a Christian should read? Hmm. Um, and we can explore maybe what that means, and I think we have already. Uh, but I think it's true. We have to read as Christians, just like we have to, mm-hmm. to live or, you know, to eat or to exercise or to right. worship as Christians, you know? Right. Um, anyway. Yeah, so absolutely. I think the answer for a Christian, for somebody moving towards Christ, is, yeah, steep yourself in it. Right. Read the Gospels more. Right. The more you read the Gospels, the more you engage in it with a prayerful way, especially, the more you're going to see these things. Yeah. And I think, I think too, just, just to reiterate, it goes a long way if 
you just tell yourself or just believe that the gospel is integrated in these stories. It mm. is. The gospel is seeping through our culture. Um, mm. And, and mm. Lewis and Tolkien, especially, and Chesterton, especially, you know, who directly did that. But it's seeping through our culture. And is, if you just continue to tell yourself and convince yourself that I can find influences of the gospel in pretty much anything that I read, mm-hmm. um, you will find it. Yeah. Right. It's as simple as maybe just looking. Right. And I think it's an important truth to realize, too, because, yes, that comes from people with a Christian background, right? right? But you can see this in authors who are not Christian, just in the sense that the human experience, the human journey is similar. Right. Like we experience, yeah, we all have different experiences. We all experience life in a different way. We have different circumstances. But the deepest desires of our heart are the same. We all long for intimacy. We all long for communion with others. We all long for peace, joy, happiness, love. Right. All these all these ideals, you know, are the same. And so you're going to see, and sometimes it can be helpful when you see so, what it looks like to strive for that outside of a Christian paradigm. Right. And then that helps you see, wow, like these things are would be on my heart even if I didn't know the gospel. Right. Yeah, and I, I think, too, while we're bringing up these three authors especially is because they seem to have a, an influence and an, an authority over even non-Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just a, a draw, especially with Lewis right? and Tolkien, that, yeah. that comes from even outside of the Christian community. People mm-hmm. you know, love and adore these, these works and these authors you know, um, who are just exemplified in the culture. And I think that speaks to the power of how the gospel resonates throughout, our, right. throughout humanity, throughout human society. You know? um, yeah, yeah so absolutely. Anyway. So I said I was going to get philosophical earlier. Now I'm really going to get philosophical. <laughs> so there's another thing I teach about and I think is an important concept to understand. So like there's this idea of a narrative, fictional narrative, right? And that is like a small, you could say small end narrative. But then there's like the story of the gospel, which in a sense is maybe a capital N narrative or the term you might use in philosophy is meta narrative. So it's a narrative that exceeds all narratives that all other narratives though our individual stories connect to this larger story and i think that's really what we're looking at when we think about the idea of narrative the idea of stories fictional narrative whatever you want to call it is we experience life on a certain level and it's this yeah god pursues us we pursue god which is at the heart of the narrative right god first loved us we respond to his grace we grow in the relationship, in the life of grace. But we see that spelled out in the gospel, start to beginning, Genesis to Revelation. We see this narrative that's kind of outside of us, but then we connect to it in somehow. When we connect to Christ through grace, through through baptism first and foremost, the rest of the sacraments, we are now a part of that story. Hmm. However, I think in the modern world, in the movement of modernism and postmodernism is okay, let's get rid of this grand story. Because everybody experiences things so differently, who are we to say that like there's one, there's one explanation for it all? Ah. Like, this is my truth, this is your truth. And so, so narratives, fictional narratives even, have become very subjective and have, I think, in the mind of the modern thinker, is less connected or not connected to the story of the gospel. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a subjective thing, and the subjective doesn't always connect to anything objective. Wow. And so I think the problem in our society and the problem for us as evangelists in this culture is how do we connect? Yes, people can acknowledge truth in a subjective way. How do we connect them to the great story if they think it's all subjective? Yeah, that's a difficult question, and I'm annoyed that you asked me it in the hopes that I would answer. <laughs> right. No, no, I uh, a few thoughts. So we're kind of Bishop Barron disciples, uh, as I'm sure you've heard you know, several times mm-hmm. already. Um, our producer, Dan, included. Don't let him get out of this. Uh, but uh, one of the things that they emphasize in kind of their word on fire community is uh, what they call the old media classic, classic works, classic books, mm-hmm. um, such as, you know, Lewis and Tolkien will be good examples or Charles Dickens or Dostoevsky, you know, great, great authors with, you know, um, yeah, epic novels or whatever it is you want to call it that display profound truths about humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, classic works, the old media. Um, and he, he kind of, you know, puts across the theme that we, 
we can find commonality in kind of these classic work, classic works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really believe that's the case, you know, is let's jump back to these great novels, um, of old that, you know, display profound truths that most everyone in humanity can relate to in some shape or form. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a great way to kind of jump back. I just don't, I, I just mm-hmm. don't see a way in a lot of times in which we can engage the kind of subjective community. Right. It's very difficult. You know, I, I totally yeah. agree with that. Um, but I think that's one way to go about it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, I think the, yeah, people in general are so um, skeptical of the grand narrative because and we're so aware of the fact that like experience is relative. Like I experience different things than you do. My perspective is different than yours, and those are shaped by the things we experience. And so people are hesitant to lash on to a yeah a grand explanation for everything. And yet, there's a paradox, there's an irony in the fact that we're also so ideological. Right. Like, we're so divided in our country, whether it's conservative, liberal, and yeah, people view everything from a particular lens, and they, they see this as their explanation for all reality. Hmm. So I think while we are hesitant to have an explanation, to accept an explanation for all reality, we kind of, I think as a culture, still live that way. We still have to latch on to some narrative. We still have this need to cling to an explanation. Right. In practice, yeah, I was going to say, just in, in practice, there's nothing we can do about how we're made. There's right. absolutely nothing we can do, but that's, that's how our creator chose to make us. And right. there's nothing we can do. Uh, we can try and skirt from that if we want, but there's nothing right. we can do about how we're made. We're wired that way for an explanation for a great narrative. So maybe there's actually something good in that. Maybe yeah. there's a reason we have these, these tendencies to cling to a narrative or an explanation. Right. And I think there needs to be humility in that, yeah, it's dangerous. Ideologies are dangerous because I see things only from this lens and then I don't have room for when people present new new information, I can only filter it through this one lens. And mm-hmm. if my lens is wrong, I'm not interpreting it correctly. Right. And and that's what happens in the political sphere. And I think you see this more and more in our political discussions. Yeah. So I think there's you know, there's this there's open minded open mindedness that we need to have, but I think what what we lose sight of is that the point of open mindedness is to come to knowledge of the truth. Mm-hmm. And so, when you and reach that, the truth, when you are convicted by something, it's it's not that you're not still open mindedness, but if you remain too radically open minded, then you will never know anything. Right. And. I think to be still open-minded when you have realized the truth of something is, is taking that too far. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I, I'm thinking back to Lewis and Tolkien, you know, and I don't know why Chesterton's kind of flying away from this conversation. But Cause anyway. you haven't really read them. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Wow. Bro, would it call me out? No, I think Lewis and Tolkien, especially why they're so meaningful and powerful is, you know, these stories, when we read them, you know, we kind of, our ideological lens kind of goes away for some reason. You know, when we read mm. these fictional stories, we wow. kind of put that to the side and kind of shut that off. And we're kind of entering into this story. And so we're open. Like I said, right. we're, letting our, we're letting our swords right. and shields down back to that, you know? Yeah. And so uh, what's so meaningful, though, is um, when we read a story like this, you know, there's so many people that are moved by both of these stories. I mean, mm. Narnia and, and uh, Lord of the Rings. And at the end, something in you wants to say, that's true. Whatever I just read, whatever mm-hmm. I just experienced through this, you know, great journey or, right. you know, through this, you know, lion and whatever, something about that is true. And, you know, lions can't talk and there's no wizards and, you know, there's no great ring and there's no Mount Doom. But at the end of the mm-hmm. day, something that I've, I've read there really moved me in a way that was true. Um, right. So, and I think that's kind of going back to the, the whole truth, you know, we, we have the ability to be open to grasp onto truths when we read these, uh, right. novels, um, in a way in which we wouldn't be able to, if we were, you know, yeah. out in the wider culture. And that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, I think it's worth clarifying that what I don't mean by, yeah, when you come to the truth, like open nine, open mindedness does look different. But it's not as if, yeah, you're now closed-minded because you have the truth and you possess the truth. The reality is the truth, nobody possesses the truth, okay? But we can can know truth through natural revelation and through divine revelation. However, if, let's say I know the truth that God exists, I know that he sent 
his son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins. I am engaged in this worldview, in this, this relationship with God through this. There's, there's there are truths that I know. However, I don't know, I don't know the entire, I can't articulate the entire meaning of everything that happens to me just sure. because I know those truths. And so being, being, you can still be open-minded in the sense that, yeah, when I'm presented with a new perspective, I'm taking it in and I'm having the humility to recognize that like, yeah, maybe I'm wrong about my assumptions about the world. And in fact, I think even with a Christian worldview, even with a, a view that claims to, yeah, know certain truths, certain revealed truths, there's room for our misperception of that. <laughs> and I think I find that, and that's why being prayerful is so important because I think the second you cling to, yeah, so many people do this with politics, you know, they cling to a conservative or a liberal ideology and really that's what they're rooted in, but the gospel is kind of their, their explanation for it, you know? And it's like, the only way to be a Christian is to be conservative. The only way to be a Christian is to be liberal. And that, it, that's what an ideology is as opposed to, yeah, recognizing that you've come to have great confidence in your knowledge of certain things and maybe a healthy skepticism in others. Hmm. You know, claiming to be Christian, claiming to even accept everything the Catholic Church teaches doesn't mean I understand everything that the Catholic Church teaches. And I think that's where we go wrong hmm. is when we assume that, yeah, I believe all these revealed truths and therefore I understand every one of them. Right. But we have to have the humility as we're presented with new perspectives to, yeah, even rethink the way maybe we've been interpreting this teaching wrong. Maybe we've been interpreting our experience wrong. And to filter that from that lens is true open-mindedness. I think the false open-mindedness is I'm going to be so open-minded that I don't claim to know anything. I don't claim to have any confidence in anything. And it, it, it yeah, it falls into just extreme relativism. Right. Yeah, I think um, we'll bring... Chesterton back into this. Um, what was his quote? Um, the whole point of having an open mind is to eventually close it on something. Is that Chesterton? Is that Chesterton? I, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the point of the point of having an open mind is to come to knowledge of the truth. Right. right. Yeah. And Absolutely. eventually close yeah. it. That's... Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're. I think kind of what you're going along with there is to maybe hopefully summarize for to make sure that I understand is. Um, we have to close our mind on the core of what we believe, of, of truth itself, mm-hmm. um, of, of Christ himself. Right. Um, what flows from that core, from that truth of what right. we believe, is where our open-mindedness should come from. Right. Um, we have a, the truth that we, we know to be true from Christ and from his church. Right. Um, and then the, what flows from that. Um, the ideologies right. or opinions or whatever flows from from those truths are where our open mindedness comes in. The closed mindedness should be on the, on the core of what we yeah. believe. So that's a great point, and I think the best example of this is Rene Descartes, Enlightenment philosopher. He's the one who said, "Yeah, like I need to forget everything I've ever believed and try to. I just want to discern." And he comes to the one truth that he knows with certainty is, "I think, therefore I am." Mm-hmm. And he he constructs this way to like, okay. What can I know, just like getting rid of all my experience, all my like assumptions about reality, I'm just going to start from scratch and figure it out. And in a way, this is a lot of the project of the Enlightenment and has led to the relativism of today. But even Descartes, he built, so, so he's the image of a house. So he's like, I'm going to tear down this house that is kind of the foundation of what I believe. But even he had to build a temporary house, so to speak, hmm. that he could live in. So in a sense, he didn't fully let go of like, yeah, I still need to like for my day-to-day life. Because if we forget any assumptions that we have about reality, if we try to live in this radical open-mindedness where we don't know anything, don't believe anything to be true, it it could drive us insane. And it has, and it's done that to people. And so I think even people who try to do that project and just construct out of nothing, they have to build some sort of temporary home to live in. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about who we are as human to have certain, I think, assumptions about reality. Sure. Wow. Yeah. How did we get here? I'm not really sure. <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> that was a huge tangent there. No, yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I will say just to kind of, you know, jump back to our, our authors that uh, we were discussing, uh, I think one thing that they clearly do really well, especially when it comes to the fictional narrative, is they, they have what they believe 
um, and what they know to be true. Um, they've closed their mind around it, um, and then their works bleed from that. Um, they, their works and their um, their narratives of Narnia, or Lord of the Rings, or you know Chesterton's works, they bleed from what they know to be true, um, which is I think kind of what we were getting along the lines of. Right. Um, so it, it's clear in their works. Uh, yeah. Right. Absolutely. So maybe maybe one way to challenge our listeners here is to yeah go figure out something you can read. Maybe it's from one of these thinkers. Um, you know, we talked about Lewis and Tolkien, but Chesterton has I recommend The Man Who Was Thursday. Um, fascinating book that I've read. It's a fictional narrative, and yeah, I would love for somebody to read that and send us an email. Um, tell me what you think. It's just got, and that's one that's like it's not the Chronicles of Narnia. It's not the Lord of the Rings series. The Man Who Was Thursday is, yeah, so much less queer. It's like this, it's kind of like, I don't know, you maybe think of like a, um, an existential novel or something where there's just like so much going on and it's unclear exactly what, yeah, what is the author actually trying to say? But I know that it's G.K. Chesterton. I know he's, this is a Christian worldview. So you have to work a little harder at, okay, what, it, what does he mean by this? What is his point? But yeah, whether it's that or just any classic work, um, read it. Send us an email. If if we haven't read it, Dan Fox has. So uh, yeah, we'll <laughs> just get him on it and refer to that because he's the most well-read of the three of us. But yeah, we'd love to engage in conversation with you guys about anything you're reading, really. Yeah, and just maybe one thing I could offer too to think about is, you know, when I read these great works or I'm fired up by them or whatever book you read, um, what kind of evangelical power does that have? You know, I think with with whatever we do, whatever we whatever we choose to spend our time on, it should be oriented towards charity. You know, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to reading books. You know, how can I share whatever I read with someone? You know, I'm fired up about something. That's probably if if I'm excited. That's probably a um, a sign that you need to to share and use that for your evangelical purposes in some way. Um, you know, bring that into your conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, um, give a book to someone who you feel like might need to hear that message. Um, you know. Just, just ask yourself the question, you know, whatever I'm reading or whatever it is I'm taking in, how can I share that with the people around me? Um, right. And I think too, to do that, we have to make time for it in our lives. Right. You know, I think you're definitely someone who's, who's actively, you've had to try to make more time to read good things in your life. Yeah. And I'm so grateful. I did. So I think I've said this before, but Dylan and Dan especially have just had a really kind of large impact on the things that I read and how much I read because they're really prolific readers. And in the past, you know, six months or so, you know, close to a year now, I've been reading a lot more and picking and choosing what I read a lot more, you know, selectively. And uh, it has totally amplified my life. I'm just fired up about reading and about the truths I hear and, you know, and and visualize and what I'm reading. And um, it just amplifies the way that I go about my day and the conversations that I'm able to have because of what I'm reading. And um, yeah, it's just been such a powerful influence in my life. So I would encourage anyone listening to, to pick up something great. You know, don't read that, you know, romantic fiction book that just came out in 2019 or whatever. What you about know, the cat in the hat? Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Seuss could be a conversation for another time. <laughs> but, um, but you know what I mean. Pick, pick up something great. Uh, maybe something that you read in school, in high school, that you were bored uh, mm-hmm. reading at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, but come to find out is an amazing novel. Yeah, things yeah. like that, you know. Yeah, Tale of Two Cities. Oh, example. my. Don't yeah. get me started about Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, but yeah, as we were saying, Nick's, you know, this has transformed his life. Obviously, it's transformed mine as well. I don't know if that's obvious, but I said obvious. It's obvious. So it's obvious. You're a nerd. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, no. okay. Thanks, Nick. Um, but yeah, so make time in your life for it, just like you make time in your life for prayer. And I think if you do those things, make time for prayer, make time for reading, allow the two to intersect, read things from a prayerful, meditative standpoint. Yeah, it'll really transform your life and it'll transform your conversations. Hmm. Find friends who want to talk about it. Find find nerds for friends or find I have devout <laughs> Christians for friends because they're naturally going to be interested in these things and yeah, get your friends to make time for for prayer yeah. and reading in their life. I feel like that's a good idea too. We can't quite get off this topic now, can we? I feel like that's a <laughs> um, a good thing to do though and I I actually kind of wish I did this more uh, formally in my life is just get a book or you know, a shorter book, a short story maybe, mm-hmm. or a novel um, and read it with a couple of your friends, right? Read it together. 
um, not, you don't have to sit down and read it out loud together, but kind of, right. you know, agree to go through it separately and at the same time. And right. that can really inform just beautiful conversations about um, incredible yeah. truths. A great example of this, Nick, you know, like I remember this was probably, gosh, maybe this is nine months ago now, but you read The Weight of Gory, which is an essay from C.S. an essay, yeah. is that what you say? It, from C.S. Lewis. That. It's like eight pages. Right. And Nick was going on about it. I'm like, well, I guess I'm going to read this, figure out what he's talking about. And I printed it out and read it. It's public domain, you know, on the internet. And, yeah, you know, we had great conversations. I think maybe one or two of our other friends read it too. Right. And, like, we were, yeah, engaged in deep conversation that on something that took us 15, 20 minutes to read or so. Right. And so there's, yeah, there's lots of, of things, essays, um, journals, publications. You know, we talk about the word on fire journal. Great example of something that's it's shorter articles. You know, we live in an article culture where there's, article article after article after article on the internet <laughs> and but like read something tangible because i find it hard to read a whole article on the internet just because the screens are so distracting and there's always something else to look at hmm. print something out and read it even if it's an article you're reading online print it out print out two copies give one to a friend absolutely hey quick plug too if you're one of those people that reads kindles or nooks you're wrong you need hardcover books and real books yeah, That's I it. agree. I agree. You're wrong. <laughs> You're just simply wrong about That's things. It's a very bold truth claim, Nick. <laughs> anyway. All right. Feel free to send the hate mail to Dylan. His email yes. is DM. No, 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 oh, well, well, not that email. My email okay. is, well, our email is colloquiumshow at gmail.com. Always feel free to email us with questions, comments, concerns, recommendations, book reports. <laughs> Whatever you want to send us. Yeah. I think we're just having fun right now, so we don't really want to end this podcast. How do we usually end it? Um, we usually say, like, see you later. Here's something from Dan. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart And lean not on your own understanding In all your ways acknowledge Him And He shall direct your in the